Hello, and welcome to episode 100 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Evling. Thank you for joining us for this milestone episode. Over the last 100 episodes, we've argued, agreed, changed our minds, laughed, and even cried on a couple occasions. We've learned a lot about each other as our conversations about movies allowed us to see things in ourselves and each other, as well as try to make sense of the world around us. But we've never explicitly talked about the movies that we feel have shaped us as people and as movie watchers. So for this episode, we're talking about the five movies that have defined us. We've purposefully, or maybe even lazily, been vague on how we define defining. For one thing, that's what this episode will be about. How have the movies defined us? But for another, we wanted to hear how each of you define defining. We put out a call for your lists of movies, and we've loved seeing your lists and listening to you all reflect on how movies have shaped each of you. We appreciate every listener, and we can only hope that at some point in the 100 episodes so far, we've said something that was meaningful to you. So get ready to hear more reminiscing and reflection than we've ever packed into an episode. Keep listening. Hello, the Can We Still Be Friends podcast. You made it. 100 episodes. Nate, Ryan, it is quite the feat, and you guys should be proud of yourselves. Don't just be proud because you've put 100 in the can because a lot of really crappy podcasts have been able to record 100 podcasts. That's not really all that much of a feat. It's that you guys have put out 100 quality episodes. The rapport that the two of you have um, have moved it long past what you even have called the podcast because it's clear you're friends and we love listening to you guys banter about movies. So thank you for bringing that Uh, every time that you record. Um, Thank you for helping me see movies in a different way, uh, for appreciating certain things about film uh, that I haven't, or bringing a perspective to movies that I have previously appreciated and now have an entirely different angle for which to think it through. And lastly, thank you for constantly uh, picking movies that I like. No, I'm kidding. Um, Thank you for um, forcing me to look again at films that I have rejected or uh, question films that I thought I had loved. Um, The wisdom that you guys bring to the recording, as well as the outside voices uh, that you have brought in to help me think through film, has been fully appreciated Your podcast will always be one of my favorites for the place that it has in my own mind and my own memory. Every year, uh, for the past few years, my family and I, we have driven out to Big Bend National Park, and we do so right around Thanksgiving. So every year, I have the opportunity to look forward to T. Hanks giving because it drops right around the time uh, that we go to Big Bend and your voices um, are always a part of that trip. And we are so thankful, um, my wife and I, uh, to listen to you guys and just celebrate such a wonderful holiday as T. Hanks giving. You all need to trademark that. That's all I'm saying. Thank you very much. Congratulations on 100 episodes. And here is to 100 more I hope. Have a great day, guys. All right. So that was 
very loyal, very faithful listener, Andrew, who's been with us really since the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what better way to kick off our 100th anniversary episode celebration than just with a big old pat on the back? Yes. <laughs> uh, well done, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, you too. I think that said it all. I actually, I like as I was listening, I got more and more like sheepish. I was like, <laughs> oh man. But we are super thankful for that message and Absolutely. you know just thankful that and you know that really anyone has been listening for 100 episodes and mm-hmm. has been getting stuff out of it it's just uh, really this is something that I think we do because we get something out of it the yeah. two of us for, yeah. from each other and from watching the movies and so just to be able to share that and then to hear that it's actually you know helpful to anyone is great to hear yeah uh, just full disclosure, Andrew was my roommate in college. We are very, very good friends mm-hmm. um, in real life. Uh, he's just been one of my sort of, has become sort of a lifelong friend since college. And so yeah. just great to hear from him. Uh, Andrew, I know him as AJ. Thank you so much, man. That's yeah, awesome. Thanks Thank so you. much. Yeah. Um, but here we are. Here we are. A hundred episodes. Eight years later. Yeah. You know, I, I was looking at Facebook today. Did, I don't know if you saw I this saw or not. That, yeah. Uh, the memories. Uh-huh. Now we're recording this, so this isn't the day that you're listening to it now, dear listener. But uh, <laughs> but as we were recording this, it was exactly on this day eight years ago that we formally announced right. on Facebook that we were going to be doing this podcast. That was really interesting to see that. Yeah, that like, the chances it's happening. Yeah. yeah, and and then back then we tried to do two episodes a month. Right. And holy cow! <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> that didn't last very long. No, and yeah, it's. AJ made a good point that a lot of that podcasts get to a hundred episodes. It's maybe not that big of a deal, but this does feel us, this yeah. does feel special. This is you know eight years in the making, and a lot's changed over eight years. And yeah, I mean the the original premise of the show. If if you've kind of if you've kind of just caught up with us later over these last few episodes, the original premise of the show was that we were going to intentionally pick movies that we disagreed on. Yeah. Um, and then we were going to rewatch them and basically have it out about yeah, them. Right. And and that just didn't last very long, partially because we found out we didn't disagree on probably <laughs> enough movies to do a hundred episodes. Yeah. In in a sense, we had to drum up some 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 drama drama that yeah. that was a little inauthentic. But then also, it just got really hard to come in and intentionally antagonize you yeah it's like hey i can't wait to record on saturday yeah. and just fight with you i'm really gonna i'm That's really gonna, gonna be a lot of fun leave yeah. my friend's house feeling worse <laughs> about him um but no i think once we kind of done did away with that premise i think it's really turned into something that has been super valuable uh for for me and, and for mm-hmm. you and and we've kind of just grown along the way into this into yeah. what it is now and i don't even know if i could really define what it is now yeah but uh i Who think knows? we kind of have our our general themes that we like to mm-hmm. look at movies through and mm-hmm. and you know for you who are listening uh thank you for joining us along with that yeah everybody who's reached out to us and uh everybody who's just kept at it yeah we appreciate that I got to say one special thank you to uh, to to my wife Andrea and to your wife Kelsey for uh-huh. the special hundredth uh, episode little celebration they gave us. Uh, we have we have new mugs, right? Hundredth anniversary or hundredth episode, episode mugs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been eight years, not a hundred. No, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but yeah, it's it was a little cake with the hundred candle. Yeah. Like, spelling out a hundred. There weren't actually a hundred candle candles on the cake, and uh, and I think. We know each other well enough that we both saw the new mugs and we're like, uh, those aren't the mugs we usually <laughs> Like, this is great and all. Now, now where's our mugs? 
uh, yeah, but that was really special. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I don't know how much my wife really listens to our podcast. Has but, she uh, ever listened to an episode? Not a whole one. I don't think. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I don't think she has. That's fine. <laughs> I'm totally fine with it. does not really bother me that much. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got a new mug to catch your tears in. So. <laughs> it's a big one, too. So good. <laughs> So anyways, all right, let's 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 do this. All right. Yeah. So we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about this this episode is really about us. Right. Me <laughs> and you, Ryan. Uh and, and I know that if you're a new listener, that that might sound kind of weird. Um, yeah. and this is going to be a different episode. It's not going to be typical. Right. It's for me at least, it's a bit of like a more of like a cohesive history, I think. Yeah. Um, and maybe the same for you. That like kind of a picture of how movies have shaped the way I see myself and the way I see movies. Yeah. I had a coworker who said it best. I think that movies that represent me as a movie watcher. Right. That's, that was kind of my base level for each one. Um, but then that could be a lot of different movies, a lot it more could, than five. Yeah. And so then my second level was sort of, which ones do I feel like say something or said something about me or kind of defined for me that's how I see the world, or that's what I think is funny. Yeah. So yeah, there were some layers, but the base level was that like which ones had an impact on like this is what movies can be yeah. to you. Yeah. And um I you you kind of wrestled with it for a lot longer than I did, I I think. Right? Uh, well, to a degree I had to get out of my own head. Mm-hmm. I could just sort of list out five movies that come to my mind quickly, yeah. but then it ended up being more than five, of course. And then I started, like, I had to kind of work really hard to get out of what will people think of me if I pick this movie. Sure. Or if I don't pick. Or if I don't pick this movie. I was just getting really self-conscious about it. Mm. And not in, like, a way that kept me up at night or anything. But <laughs> it doesn't really matter what other people think of these movies or what they think of these being my choices. These are, for better or worse, these are the choices. Right. You know, I kind of, as soon as we thought about it, uh, I kind of had, like three movies just come to me hmm. and those ended up on my list. And then the other two, I kind of had to sort out a little bit longer, but um, yeah, it was just sort of like a gut reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely thing. a gut thing for sure. I will also say that at least looking at even the lists that we got, mm -hmm. these are not movies that people probably saw within the last few years. Right. These are movies that they really had to come at a time yeah. where they were being formed by mm -hmm whatever they were taking in, whether it was movies, books, music, they were being heavily formed by those. And so with that said, I think someone could easily look at my list, and this is where I was getting self-conscious too, and be like, oh, okay, very little diversity. <laughs> yeah. No foreign films. Right. You know, like, I am a different movie watcher now. Mm -hmm. Because of the foundation. Because of these, these foundations. Movies. Right. I guess I can't even be apologetic about that. I just have to be honest and be like, these were the movies that really did kind of define me as a movie watcher, mm -hmm. you know? And back then, you know, at those days, I was not thinking about broadening my horizons. Right. Yeah. These were just the movies that stumbled into my lap and hit me really hard. Right. And we, like you kind of mentioned, we got, we got some voicemails, we got some email, some texted lists from people that we'll be sharing throughout we also might be getting some after we record, so stick around for the end of the episode. Yeah. We'll, we'll put those in there. Yeah, anything that we don't get in, it's uh, sorry, we just recorded a little too early for you, I guess. Uh -huh. But we will get you in. Uh, just stick around to the end, and we'll have you uh, on the episode there. So, and listeners definitely stick around. And I, I think it's, I think it's kind of a, a lot of people had movies from 
pretty specific time period in their life. Like yeah. uh, a lot of high school, college uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, high school, which college, or maybe like one from the childhood or something. You, you're kind of encountering ideas on your own and maybe seeing a parent, seeing movies apart from people that were really formative for you. And and that was actually echoed. I was texting one of my best friends, longtime best friend, Jason, and what he was saying about maybe why movies from high school and college are the definitive movies are um, that you're actually kind of proud of the films that define you because maybe you haven't had like a ton of other stuff to experience right. so much that yeah. like you can be like, Oh, I haven't done anything with my life, but I have seen this movie. <laughs> like be proud of that. <laughs> yeah. um, and that actually, as you get older, getting married and being a parent skews what affects you. Mm. And the moments in film that you connect with are going to be different. And it might almost make movies seem less important yeah. <laughs> because like, Oh, that reminds me of being a parent, which is way more important to me than what happened in that movie. Sure. Sort of. Yeah. Um, which I thought made a whole lot of sense. Um, so Jason said his, his five movies would be hook. Yeah. Which all right. I'll get, I'll, I'll talk about this later, but that, that, that's kind of an honorable mention for me. Sure. One that could have been on the list. Mall rats, bottle rocket, lost in translation and Shaun of the dead. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. That's, yeah. That's a great list, first of As all. As with all of these, they're going to be great Every lists. single list we got, I was like, oh, man, I wish I could have that on mine. I wish true. I could have that on mine. And some of the reasons he gave, I think, are, are also fairly uh, common. He said Bottle Rocket was the first indie film that he got. Yeah. Like, oh, I see. You know, um, Lost in Translation and Shaun of the Dead, he said they were brilliant and affected him on a comedic and emotional level at growth periods in his life. Yeah, like, totally. They just kind of came at a moment when they were important. Yeah, well, you hear these lists and you're just like, ah, that's ah, true. Maybe that one should have been on there. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, let's get started. Um, I'll start and I'm going to, I'm going to work kind of chronologically, uh, just because it kind of worked, it worked out that way. Although the chronology gets very compact in the middle (laughs) (laughs) because it's that like high school, college time. Um, but the first movie and, like I said, Hook could have been there. It could have been a bunch of movies from my youth. But the, the the movie from my childhood that I look back and see as defining for me and my first movie that I want to talk about is Toy Story. Mm. I saw it in the theater. I remember, I have this distinct memory of one of my mom's friends coming over like later that day or later that week. And I, bless her heart, I recounted the entire movie <laughs> she just sat and there like and my to favorite it. jokes <laughs> beginning to end and i was like and they even did the disney castle thing but it was computered and yeah like, yeah it just everything about that movie experience blew me away i couldn't believe how funny it was i couldn't believe how cool it looked um it was a pace that was different for animated movies it had a sensibility it told a story it had characters that were just so different at the time mm-hmm. And it wasn't one that I watched repeatedly as a kid very much because I was 11 when it came out. Yeah, 10, this, is, uh, 10, this, is 90, this is 95 and you would have been. So it was 10, probably 11. 10. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we had talked about this a little bit ago that like two years later is when I would move into junior high movies, you know? And right. so like, and I would have been like, I was 12 yeah. when it came out, but I was just about Andy's age, you know? And so then when Toy Story three came out, I was definitely like Andy's age or, or, you know, I had like grown up pretty much exactly with Andy yeah. up to that point. 
And so the Toy Story franchise is really impactful on me. Um, but I do feel like Toy Story was a really pivotal moment for me looking back. And it prepared me for a type of storytelling and a type of joke telling and everything that um, that the other ones hadn't. Even even if there were like things in animated or, or, or in children's movies that were really good, you know, like the carpet scene in Aladdin and Robin yeah. Williams in well, Aladdin. And or, we, we grew up in that run right. of like Disney movies from like Little Mermaid to like Lion King. Right. It was just like, bam, 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 bam. Just right. all star movies. And the Beast. But you're right. Toy Story is different. Right. I mean, it's Pixar, but I mean, you're right about even every single sensibility in it is different. Right. Almost expects a different thing out of the child audience. Yes. And I think that emotional weight of it, which watching it again, Pixar definitely has lean more heavily into emotions but to have woody really question his value and react in a way that's really unhealthy (laughs) and like trust the audience trust children to understand that Mm -hmm. and and stick with it again this is in hindsight i i can see that that is a sort of kid i became was somebody who was pretty in tune to those sorts of things mm-hmm. um in people and in myself um and reacted unhealthily you know at times like i wasn't like i was like oh this is like woody i shouldn't push somebody off a ledge because i'm feeling this way like i would push people off ledges like woody did uh metaphorically speaking um <laughs> Statute of limitations is yeah, right. so, you know, we could talk about it now. <laughs> um but yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna make it too grandiose, but like it's just one of those things that in hindsight I can see it's a defining movie. You can be right. as grandiose as you want, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um it it just it just really opened me up to different ways of seeing stories and expecting different things yeah, with stories. I, I totally can see that, you know, and, and we had our list beforehand, so I tried to rewatch not every movie of yours, but most of them and what? And, you know, I think that what struck me this time was just through and through how smart it is in every decision it makes. Right. You know, like as far as this being kind of the first feature computer animated film, first of all, how good it still looks. Yeah. I mean, of course, Pixar's come a yeah. long way. Yeah. But you're not, you're not looking at it like, oh, I can barely watch this anymore. Right. I mean, no, it is still a really good looking movie. Mm-hmm. And... I love even this time I appreciated, which I don't think I really appreciated much as a kid, is the way that the Randy Newman score yeah. kind of just sets the tone mm-hmm. for what should be expected of this movie. Like Not it's, just you've got a friend in me. No, but, like, but, but also throughout. But even the style of it, it's timeless. And it's also a really good entry point for existentialism. If I'm a toy and nobody's playing with me, what am I here for? Yeah. And like just kind of watching a character work through a relatively low stakes existential crisis um, in, in healthy and unhealthy ways uh, is really, I think, valuable. Yeah, and it's 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 ripe for. I mean, where it goes with those characters, it's really ripe yeah. for even deeper discussions of existential questions, yeah. and also what it means to how things change as you grow up, and mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's a video essay on YouTube. I can't remember who did it, but they talk about you know the existentialism of Toy Story, and basically that the the child is the toy's god, right? <laughs> and the to- the the God is just setting the meaning for the children's or for the toy's life. And it's so it's been something that as an adult, I can sort of think deeply about like 
changing circumstances, like mm-hmm. in Toy Story 2, where Woody's suddenly important in a way he hadn't anticipated. And then Toy Story 3, he's suddenly unimportant in a way that he hadn't anticipated. And yeah. how do you deal with that? And mm-hmm. Yeah. So I couldn't name the whole franchise, but... Right, that would Toy go against Story, the rules. Uh, yeah. yeah. Toy Story itself uh, was definitely a defining movie for me. Cool. Well, great way to kick it off. Um, okay, so I'll go, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with something that also was uh, pretty defining in that same sort of era, that mm-hmm. I would say kind of 10 years old, uh, 8 to 10 years old. Uh, but for me, um, it was uh, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. um, which was 1990. So um, I don't know if I actually saw – I did not see it in the theater – um, I think I saw it maybe a year or two after it came out. I don't know that I even have a really strong memory of the first time I saw it. I do remember before I watched it, um, kind of my mom explaining this was going to be a movie about um, you know a person who has scissors for hands. And I was kind of like, I just thought that sounded weird. Yeah. And then I just remember getting really just sucked into it. Mm. Like for me, Edward Scissorhands was this defining point in my life where I realized for movies – a movie can really be about anything. Hmm. One of the most powerful things about movies is that if someone has an idea and they stand behind that idea enough and they believe in it and, and they've got enough artistic merit to, to bring it to life, um, they can make you care about pretty much anything. Hmm. And, and, that, and that a movie can have the wildest concept and honestly kind of the stupidest sounding concept. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and somehow reach you in a way that is just, you know, you get that you, it's what Roger Ebert called those machines of empathy. And it wasn't until repeat viewings later down the road where I would start to see kind of like more and more things to appreciate about what Tim Burton was doing as far as like what he was bringing in for inspiration, like his sort of style, the sort of bringing in of that German expressionism, the whole, to me, this was my introduction to the idea of suburban satire, Mm. which is something that I would come back to again and again, um, you know, in in movies and that we've seen over and over again. But Mm. honestly, I think Edward Scissorhands, it's not the first, but like, it's definitely for me, the first that I saw, Yeah, you know, now I watch it and I'm like, Johnny Depp is definitely playing a lot off of uh, silent movie stars like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton in the role because he doesn't really talk much at all. And it's very physical comedy. It's more about how he's reacting to stuff coming out at him from around him and sort of playing the innocent character within that. Um, These are all things I would come to later. But for me, it set a template of movies that I love that are imaginative um, that have a, a look to them that they evoke real life, but they're not real life. Right. Um, they're, they're committed a, to a style. They're committed, exactly. And also, and this is a theme you're going to find in pretty much all five of my movies, is that music is so important mm-hmm. to me in, in movies. And the Ice Dance, Danny Elfman's score, is I still think one of the all-time great mm. movie scores. Uh, it is what my wife walked down the aisle to oh, wow. at our wedding. It's still, uh, I I listen to it in the movie and it will often bring tears to my eyes when I hear it. I I love that Danny Elfman score so much and it really does some heavy lifting. (laughs) There's, especially in the main scene where Kim is just slowly dancing as he's doing an ice sculpture.
it also had a sense of humor to it yeah. that um you know that I think did become sort of uh typical of things that I would find funny. Uh, Alan Arkin oh, in that I was movie just gonna say. is so funny. Where are you going, Edward? <laughs> <laughs> you can't buy the necessities of life with cookies. <laughs> um, yeah, Alan Arkin stood out to me this time as extremely funny. Yeah, and, and, and Diane Weist as Peg is, mm-hmm. is just such a loving character. And to me, this time watching it around, I thought it was a really interesting tale about assimilation. Just that the way that the neighborhood kind of almost just sees him as an exotic character, but there's an expectation to assimilate there. And when when he doesn't assimilate, you see the backlash. Yeah. As long as it can suit my needs, then right. I'll accept it. Right. But once that different voice has its own voice. point of view, yeah. then it's a danger. And um, I think uh, uh, another way I could see this movie being defining is that it's really the crossroads of Dr. Seuss and David Lynch. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I never even thought about that. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And it's got definite like Blue Velvet vibes in ways uh, and some of the strange, not quite body horror, but it's body horror light for somebody to have scissors for hands. Sure, yeah. Um, And it's... An extremely childish adult movie and an, ex- an extremely adult children's mm-hmm. movie. And uh, the fact that it found an audience and did, does what it does so well is really remarkable. Yeah, and I love that Tim Burton, as far as like it being sort of like a childish adult movie and adult children's movie, like he really leans into that idea of it being a fairy tale when yeah. it's convenient for him. Yeah. So at the beginning, he starts it off as almost like, let me tell you this tale right. of this guy who had scissors for hands. But then it goes into this very realistic right. sort of. I yeah. mean, it's just it, it's a fabricated idea of suburbia, but it's not like a fairy tale, right? You know. But then when it needs to, it goes back to the fairy tale at the end, where it's just like, and it's still snowing. Yeah, you know, this is what's magical about that outsider, about that person. Mm-hmm. It's like we know he exists, and now we get this beautiful snow. Mm-hmm. You know. Anyways, yeah, yeah it's, I, a, it's a great pick. Yeah, and in fact, I, I we took studies in film together, mm-hmm. um, and the first day, our professor went around and asked all of us our favorite movie. Uh, the funny thing is, he goes, no judgment, even if your favorite movie's Dumb and Dumber. And there was someone who was like, I was going to say my favorite movie was Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> I think and he I even would... might have said, unless your favorite movie is oh, Dumb and Dumber or something like that. <laughs> I remember it being a little bit more harsh than that. but And I wanted to be like, well, I do love Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, it's a good movie. movie. Anyways, uh, I just wanted to say that because Edward Scissorhands was what I said in that class at the time as my absolute favorite movie. Mm. So I didn't recall that. I don't remember what I said my favorite movie I don't remember was. what you said either. Before we move on to our next movie, I want to play uh, one of our listener voicemails from Rachel. And one of the reasons I want to do so is because one of them is another Tim Burton movie. Mm -hmm. So why don't we go ahead and have a listen? Hi, Nate. Hi, Ryan. This is Rachel from Milwaukee calling. Congratulations on your 100th podcast episode. What an accomplishment. So proud of you guys. Pumped to hear what your five movies are. My five movies, I think, are Big Fish, Wayne's World. Scott Pilgrim, Shaolin Soccer, and Moulin Rouge. And you guys have done three out of those five already. Um, my most favorite movie that I've learned about from your guys' podcast is Bull Durham. Thank you guys so much for all the hard work you put into this podcast, and congratulations again. Bye. That's another great list. 
Uh, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, and for I your list and your kind words. I am a fan of Big Fish. That's actually one of my wife's uh, all time favorite movies. Yeah. Is Big Fish? I think that's kind that of was where a big movie in college. I that, remember that might be. I hate to say that might be the last of Tim Burton for me, though. I know. Well, we talked about this. Yeah, we need to. We, yeah. we talked about this when we did Ed Ed Wood, I think. And I I talked about this with Kelsey when I watched Edward Scissorhands this week. I think I think that uh, Sweeney Todd is better than Sweeney Todd. Uh, I might remember. But there's just sort of a, a sadness I feel when I it watch is, yeah. peak Tim Burton. Oh, my, because it's, it's like, so good. Oh, my gosh. CGI was the worst thing that happened to Tim Burton, if you ask me. Uh, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we don't need that's, to get That's a that. whole other episode, I think. Yeah. But thank you, Rachel. Yeah, uh, uh, another great list. Um, well, then I'll, I'll go again with my, my next movie. I jump, I jump ahead uh, to 2000. All right. All right. Um, fast forward. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, my my second movie that defines me is actually the first movie that came to mind when we when we said this. All right, um, and that is Kenneth Lonergan's directorial debut. Uh, you can count on me. I just knew this was going to be on your list. I I, I knew it. I, I can I can believe that. I think I've I've talked about it here and there. The day I rented You Can Count on Me was the same day I rented uh, L.A. Confidential from Music Stop Movie Time in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. That's still there? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Too bad. I know. Uh, but my DVD collection is, owes a lot to their closing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember, I remember the guy, you know, all those video stores had the guys. The guy. The guys. And uh, he held up both of them and looked at me. And I was like, oh, gosh, what's he going to say? <laughs> this could go either way. When they, when they looked you in the eye and he said, great movies oh man you then you knew yes you passed (laughs) yeah but you can count on me was so i was 16 probably um when i saw it and yeah i loved it right away it may be the least well-known movie on both our lists underseen for sure yeah yeah um it's the story of uh, a brother and a sister played by laura linney and mark ruffalo whose parents die in a car accident when they're children. And Sammy, the sister, goes on to stay in the town, live in the house that they grew up in, um, get a job at the local bank, has a son with a deadbeat father who doesn't, isn't in the picture. Um, and her brother, Terry, is kind of a transient uh, ne'er-do-well <laughs> sort of uh, who she doesn't hear from very often at the beginning of the movie she hears from him and he's going to come and visit and uh, her sort of like view of herself being a stable person conflicts with his view of himself as somebody who's gone out and tried to do something with his life tried and failed admittedly but tried to do something and um, I just remember being very moved by it because what happens with the characters is, uh, I think, a really brilliant emotional arc. Mm-hmm. But also, it's funny in a way that was unexpected to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty understated sort of funny. But the thing that has always stood out to me uh, is Mark Ruffalo's performance. Mm. And so, as a movie watcher, it was a movie that one of the first times where I was like, this script is really good. You know, like I could tell it was really well written. Mm-hmm. And also how enamored I became of performances yeah. and like just really great performances and connecting emotionally to those performances. And there are moments that 
as I was watching it, I'm like, this scene is in my head so often, just the visuals of it. The first time when Mark Ruffalo gets a, gets a, he tries to call this girl he's been living with and finds out she's in the hospital. Yeah. Not to be hyperbolic or to, to be cliched, but it really is like a Brando-esque performance. One of those early Marlon Brando performances where you're like, there is something like real happening in this character mm-hmm. that is setting him apart from everybody else who's acting. Do you have everything you need? think so. What are you going to do? I don't know. Just send her the money, I guess. Maybe you should stay home for a while. Yeah, maybe that'd be a good idea. Even though Laura Linney's great in it, yeah. she's still, and I think it's part of the character, there's like a kind of like a veneer on her performance yeah. that Mark Ruffalo is just so real in. And he mumbles and he stammers yep. and he doesn't make eye contact with the other actors. Like he's just, it's just so incredibly real. And that was one of the things I kind of looked for in performances. Like it might be Mark Ruffalo's greatest performance. I do really like Mark Ruffalo, but still... I don't know if he's ever gone back to the whatever well he tapped into for Terry. I don't know that he's gone back there. And um, this time around when I rewatched it, I thought it was funnier this time than I've ever thought it was, Um, especially Kenneth Lonergan as the priest. I was just going to say, I would say like, actually, I think a lot of the comedy comes from the supporting cast. Matthew Broderick can be really funny too. Yeah, he Um, can. Sort of like, you know, just super annoying boss. Yeah. But yeah, the Kenneth Lonergan as the priest. Yeah, like, I don't know what the church's stance is on adultery and fornication. Well, it's a sin. <laughs> yeah, those those scenes are incredible. And some of the, the writing of just like wording the conversation so perfectly, but also just like the performance of it. Like when Sammy is going to leave suddenly to have an affair with her boss, it's like, really late at night and she says i'm going out do you need anything and he's like like what (laughs) (laughs) um it's just a great movie like really well made really well written really well acted another another good uh culkin performance too right rory culkin Culkin. yeah another another culkin Culkin. yeah Yeah. he's great i think he's way better than macaulay uh, (laughs) go back to our last episode and you'll hear exactly how you feel about yeah yeah like he's so like the scene where mark ruffalo is trying to tell him how dull and narrow the town is to an eight-year-old who's like i don't know (laughs) it's nice here my friends are here i don't know So it it definitely is one of those like first like this is what a good movie is. Yeah. And I also can't discredit feeling fancy for being 16 and getting and liking that movie. Yeah. You know? And I also I don't think I have ever mentioned this person, but she was so influential in my high school movie watching. And that's my drama teacher, director, Ann Johnson, who saw movies constantly. She was uh, the one who, when my friend and I saw Magnolia, we were like, that was dumb. She was like, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Magnolia, another movie that could very easily have been on this list. Um, And I remember feeling so good being able to talk about that movie with her. Mm, Yeah. So that's another reason it's just really influential on me and definitive for me. But something 
else that I can tell that movie influenced me towards is liking movies that are realistic. Mm, yeah. And the fact that this movie, you know, could have been a movie where Terry turns his life around and he does stay with Sammy and they live together. And as brother and sister, they raise her son and he makes good in his life. But he doesn't because he's only been there for a, a few days or right, maybe a right. few weeks at most. And you aren't going to undo all of that right. in that time. Yeah. But they reconnect that scene at the very end where he says, remember when we were kids, what you used to say to each other. And yeah. like, obviously it's the title of the movie. Yeah. They didn't need to say it, right. you know, like that sort of thing, because they wouldn't have said anyway. And so Kenneth Lonergan went on to do that in Manchester by the Sea, where like, of course you wanted Casey Affleck's character to move back to the town and raise his nephew and like all this stuff, but there's no way that that could happen. Yeah. I do feel like that Lonergan's so good at you obviously knowing exactly what you want for these characters, and you know he's not going to deliver that, but mm -hmm. it's all in the sort of small graces. Yeah. And you get just enough of a payoff to be like, okay, that movie didn't end with that. Maybe there's still hope for someday. Who knows? Yeah. But even if it's not, these are good people. But you know? setting like, realistic expectations you know. for what change and grace and growth looks like. Yeah. You know, at 16, learning like, oh, I have problems and will have problems that can't be solved in two weeks. Right. Or ever be solved, but can be progressed. Yeah. <laughs> I think about that movie probably once a week. Yeah. So something reminds me of it. I just really love it. It's like one of the first movies that comes to mind when I think about important movies. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to take us uh, as far as tone goes in a little bit of a different direction, <laughs> <laughs> but still kind of sticking to sort of my younger self. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to go a little bit chronological. In fact, I can't tell you exactly whether I saw this or Edward Scissorhands first, um, but this is definitely what shaped me with comedy. And that mm -hmm. is Wayne's World. Yeah. Um, and I don't need to say much about this because we did a whole we episode on Wayne's it, World. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't not have it on my list, no, even though yeah. we've already done an episode. Uh, this is, for me, by far, as far as comedies go, this shaped me. Mm -hmm. um, because I saw it so young, this was a movie I don't think I was even supposed to be watching. It was, <laughs> you know, this was a movie that my parents... My parents... It's um, a little, little dirty for a... A bit, Ten yeah. Ten-year-old or however old you were. Yeah, and I, you know, uh, and maybe that was part of its appeal at the time. Yeah. But uh, my, my mom was a huge movie watcher. My dad, not so much, but my dad loved Wayne's World. <laughs> so they definitely bought this on VHS. And I remember how I first watched it was um, a babysitter came over that I thought was very cool. <laughs> high school babysitter. And she saw the VHS and she goes to my parents, she goes you guys have Wayne's World? And they're like, yeah, you know, if you want to watch it, go ahead and watch it. Um, and I think they meant like, like after, after we go, go to bed. bed. <laughs> but nope, she just made us all popcorn and we watched Wayne's World. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think I got all of it, but yeah. like, but for me, it was just, I loved the characters of Wayne and Garth. I thought they were funny, you know, mm -hmm. as far as they were acting. And I didn't know all the layers of the comedy when I watched it, but it's one of those movies that, it was just one that even after that uh, that first viewing, I would watch a lot. And sometimes I would watch it with my parents. And there were certain things that my dad found funny. And I didn't realize they were funny until he pointed that out to me why it was funny, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and so I realized just how much uh, was going on in this movie. And that's been true even as I watch it now. Yeah. Like if you go back to our episode, we found new things in it yeah. that we didn't notice before. And it was sort of like a 
everything but the kitchen sink approach yes. to comedy and somehow worked. There was actually a story you could follow. Yeah. Um, and the story itself was only able to be followed enough to get to an ending where they didn't even care about the ending and gave you, right. hey, how about, how about three endings? <laughs> <Yeah>. you <know? laughs> and so that was to me sort of like, oh, a movie can be about movies. That was like mind blowing to yeah. me. Yeah, and comedy can be about comedy. Yeah, and like, and like this movie can be aware that it's a movie mm-hmm. and it can tell you, yeah, we know it's a movie to the point where I thought it was so funny when I was a kid. If you let the credits go on long enough, you would get to a point where Wayne and Garth are sitting on the couch just flipping through a magazine <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and they're like, kind of like, why are they still here? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that was like this fourth wall breaking yeah, thing yeah. that I just thought was so incredible as a kid. And even now I think about it and I'm like, what a silly gag, but like, that's just smart. You know, yep. that's just smart comedy. And that's just a movie you can put on. I don't care what mood you're in. You put that movie on and it's going to, it's going to lighten things up a little bit. And I find it would not be a good list for me if I didn't have at least one movie there that was just like, I need a movie that I can throw on that always makes me feel good. Right. And Wayne's World is definitely that movie for me. I think one thing that sets it so far apart from other comedies is that it is funny all the way through. Yeah, that too. And how many movies, like if you really sit down and watch classic, quote unquote, classic comedies, how funny they are for the first half hour, then the story starts and it just loses that momentum yeah and wayne's world never loses it no and i think and we talked about this with when we did the episode i think penelope spheris was absolutely instrumental in that because obviously mike myers and dana carvey could nail the sketch style of the Mm -hmm. movie which it does better than so many other movies yeah but in its worst form, that movie could just be a bunch of gags that didn't really fit together. But Penelope Spears was able to cohere it and string a line of groundedness in like the metal scene that who would have thought that that would be the the kind of like right, binding right. agent. But she was able to weave that through so that the movie stays funny. It keeps its momentum that the story comes in and out without you losing any of the energy. Yeah. But, you know, even going back to what I said, like every movie in my list has something to do with music. And, you know, obviously Mm. Wayne's World is no exception. Yeah. It's definitely rooted in that world of music. And I love the fact that this movie also was such a cultural touchstone for not just me, but so many others. Yeah. Because it is one of the movies that I can quote pretty much any line from. Mm -hmm. And somebody in the room is probably going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just happened, I mean, within the last month. So, you know, rest in peace, Meatloaf passed right. away. Yeah. To be able to say to someone like, the shitty Beatles, are they any good? And just say, they, they suck. suck. And that's just like <laughs> the greatest Meatloaf memory I have. You know, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. a great line delivery. You yeah. know, just yesterday I had a friend who, um, he was showing me a picture of uh, someone who built a, a, a guitar a rack for him. Oh, wow. Uh, for his basement and i was just like you actually do own many guitars that would necessitate an entire rack (laughs) and he knew exactly what i meant and thought it was funny yeah (laughs) that's awesome yeah and we i mean we could have played rachel's uh voicemail after this one because she has wayne's world on there and yeah so it's definitely one that a lot of people connect with and um Mm -hmm. you know it it had to be on my list so wayne's world of course well 
my next one is is my sort of defining comedy, although it could have been several things uh, as well. Wayne's World I didn't see until later, so it couldn't have been all that defining for me. Um, but my my third movie and my kind of comedy entry in this is uh, Wet Hot American Summer mm. from 2001, directed by David Wayne, written by David Wayne and Michael Showalter, who I didn't know about the state before this. I, I don't think I had seen Stella. I saw Stella. Oh, Stella wasn't out yet, which was the comedy, the two comedy shows uh, at the time that David Wayne, Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter, Ken Marino, like all those people were involved in. Yeah, yeah, on Comedy um, Central. Yeah, the state was on MTV much oh, was earlier. It? Okay. Yeah, but <clears throat> that's neither here nor there. I'm talking about Wet Hot American well, Summer. Well, we're fact-checking here, though. <laughs> and um, so this, again, if you haven't seen it, it's it feels like one of the movies that you could define as a cult classic. Yeah, for sure. Um, oh, yeah. It was a Sundance movie, but definitely not a traditional Sundance movie. Uh, certainly at this point in time, the movies that were coming out of Sundance and getting a lot of buzz were like, you can count on me, would be more of a Sundance movie. <laughs> sort of character study drama yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And Wet Hot American Summer, I remember reading about it. I, you know, I remember I saw it at Music Stop Movie Time, but like the cover was like that that cartoonish cover yeah. like meatballs or like or national like, lampoons national lampoons kind of like thing. sort yeah. of stuff like indicated that this was going to be like a raunchy comedy and like i kind of was like oh there's no way i'm getting that in my house well that's definitely what it wants to indicate right. right i mean that's what it's going for yeah. yeah uh but it's it's just this turn of the century spoof on that sort of movie yeah and i told you i don't know if you did but this is how i did it i watched wet hot american summer and wayne's world back to back and i was like oh nate and i are seeing the same thing i like, think so i think so like yeah. these movies wet hot american summer is doing for the 21st century what wayne's world did for the 90s i will 100 percent agree with that yeah. and it's a movie that is meta in the fact that it knows it's a camp movie um, it doesn't break the fourth wall. One time it does. Michael Showalter spikes the camera at the end of the movie, and I think it's hilarious. Um, but that is the movie where I was like, that's what's funny. That is what comedy is. And that like set the template for me of like joking about things and dumb humor being really smart and Again, like performance, this is a huge movie for performances. Paul Rudd reinvented himself with this movie. Like Paul Rudd's career currently is because of Wet Hot American Summer. I I cannot, I am always dying when he is like being the sort of obnoxious toddler. Picking up up his (laughs) face. my gosh and who would have thought to like do that i don't know it's just so friggin just funny. goes on for so long and he's so over the top <sighs> like when he just like he picks up the chair and is like actually <laughs> just so tired and it's like it's got word, yeah. wordplay sort of stuff but it's also an incredibly physically mm-hmm. uh, funny movie it does those like really off the wall tangents that just come back to the movie like they didn't happen. Like the scene where they go into town. They become junkies. And they, yeah, <laughs> first they get French fries and eat them in a parking lot. And then they get beer and then they sm- smoke cigarettes and they smoke <laughs> weed. And then they are like beating up elderly women for their money to buy drugs. And then they're like all just strung out in this heroin den. Yeah. And then they come back and they're like, it's always fun to get away from camp, even for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and 
not to mention that so many of the biggest stars today. Oh yeah, it's a who's who came from really. that movie. Amy pre pre SNL Amy Poehler pre most everything she did Elizabeth Banks. Uh, Paul Rudd reinvigorated his career right. with this movie. He was kind of like spinning in his wheels and like great Gatsby TV adaptation. Yeah, when and, I like, knew him, I really only knew this. Clueless, course, yeah. yeah. I mean, Michael Showalter is kind of the main actor. He doesn't act as much, but he directed like The Eyes of Tammy Faye and Big The Big Sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Bradley Cooper's very first movie. And uh, Christopher Maloney, uh, from, who was in uh, Law & Order SVU. And then on top of that, David Hyde Pierce and, and uh, Janine Garofalo, um, who were the big stars in the movie. Right, right. But then everybody else eclipsed them. And the movie just gets me like the (laughs) it's just so silly and so much of it's visual so i could only just describe it but it predates what a lot of kind of alternative comedy started becoming in the last 10 years which is taking something that was silly in the past and just doing it yeah not not making fun of it not doing it in over the top way but just doing it in a sincere way that's like, oh, that is ridiculous. Yeah. And so I see like a direct line to like Jordan Peele and the James Brown interview where he does word for word James uh, an interview where James Brown was like coked out. And it's like, well, the joke is Jordan Peele's doing this. Yeah. That's kind of the, what this movie does where it's like the joke is we're doing this, not the people who did it back in the first place. Right. I do think that you're right in making that direct connection between Wayne's World and What Hot American Summer because I think both movies, they kind of interrogate movies. Yeah. It's taken me some repeat viewings to appreciate it because you have to kind of get on its wavelength of seeing it as everything in it is spoofing something. Yeah. Not just spoofing camp movies. Right. Scene for scene. Oh, this scene is interrogating and spoofing this kind of movie or right. this kind of thing that always happens in movies. Yeah. You know, this trope, basically. So each scene is its own spoof. Yeah. And so, like that scene you're talking about where they kind of go to town. Yeah. You know, it spoofs like it spoofs those spiraling like scenes. The spiraling scenes. That spiraling happen, montages. That happen in all movies. Yeah. And all, every single romantic connection in that, in Wet Hot American Summer, because there's a lot. Yeah. Um, but everyone is spoofing a different thing that you've seen in a million movies over and over again. Right. And just done in a way that for each one is just slightly askew and absurd. So like uh, the Molly Shannon getting yeah. together with the little kid. <laughs> yeah. But that little kid is doing something we've seen so many men do in romantic comedies. Right. They just happen to make a 12-year-old <laughs> yeah. do it to a, like a divorced woman in her right. 40s. Yeah. The montage scene that they do in there is just a montage of what even? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, working out w- under the direction of a can of mixed vegetables. Right. Yeah. Is it even working out? It's like a weird dance. They're dancing, they're dancing and they're but, running and they're like, it's hard to know. So, so it's like, yeah. a, it's, just a, it's just a vague aspiration. Yeah. Aspiring to something and he got it. Christopher Maloney is such a scene stealer as Gene, the camp cook. <laughs> yeah. And just like when he gives the wisdom and it doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't make it, any sense. <laughs> Be proud of who you are. Huh? Jean? It isn't about the girl, Coop. It isn't? Well, it is. But see if you can follow me here. It isn't. Oh. 
so it is, and it isn't. You are ready to be taught the new way. Will you help teach me about this? What is it? A new way? But yeah, you're right. It's just spoofing everything we've ever seen yeah. and sort of saying like, it's always been ridiculous. So you're talking like everything but the kitchen sink sort of comedy. Like yeah. everything you've ever seen in a movie, we're going to put in this. Um, on the DVD, at least the one that I have, um, they have a commentary track from David Wayne, which is really informative. He's actually like a good filmmaker to learn from. Well, you'd have to have a real keen eye yeah. to pull all of that off. Right. But they also have an alternate track with extra farts. <laughs> And it's just the the same movie, just fart sounds throughout the movie. <laughs> and it is way funnier than you think it would be. Because sometimes the farts like accompany movement or like something like they make sense. Other times there's no reason for there to be fart sounds, <laughs> but they just keep them up. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it is so much my sense of humor. And yeah. I don't know if... I had that sense of humor beforehand and this movie just like put a name to it or if I didn't know what I thought was funny until I saw this movie and I was like, that's it. Yeah. I think more than any other movie, if you want to get what I think is funny, that's it's just one. Wet Hot American Summer. All right. Well, that, that thus concludes the comedy section of our hundredth, uh, <laughs> of our, yeah. of our hundredth yeah. episode anyway. celebration. I'm actually going to do the one movie that I, in my list that probably has, well, I think there's a little bit of humor in it, but it's a pretty humorless movie, to be honest. For my third choice, I am going to go with uh, Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, I've watched this movie so many times because I tend to watch it at least once a year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I had to have it on my list because it's had an ongoing sort of impact on my life as mm -hmm. I've continued to watch it. Um, but to me, as far as like what it did at first, this was a movie when I first watched it, I didn't even know if I liked it. Mm. This is sort of Martin Scorsese's uh, adaptation of the Nikos Kazantzakis novel, Last Temptation of Christ. But it was uh, the screenplay is also co-written by Paul Schrader. So mm -hmm. it's sort of Scorsese working with Schrader, which, you know, Schrader he's wrote... Got a, uh, he's got a point of view. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. Schrader himself would go on to direct movies like First Reform, The Card Counter, which just came out. Mm -hmm. So definitely we know what kind of themes we're dealing with here. And Scorsese's basically applying these to the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe plays Jesus Christ. Uh, you've got uh, Harvey Keitel doesn't even bother hiding the Brooklyn accent <laughs> uh, doing Judas. Um, you've got some really interesting casting with like um, David, Bowie. David Bowie as Pontius Pilate, Harry, Harry Dean Stanton as uh, the Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. uh, Barbara Hershey as Mary, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene. Anyways, so, and you know, we've never really gotten so far into this on the podcast, but we both grew up definitely as sort of uh, church kids, yeah. uh, youth group. For me, definitely a youth group kid. You were a youth oh, group yeah. kid, too. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Nate, right. was I ever? Right. We know that, yeah. <laughs> definitely youth group kids. And I watched this for the first time uh, when I was in high school. So yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know if I should like it. I didn't know if I did like it. Oh, I knew I shouldn't like I it. I pretty much thought it was wrong of me to like it. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I watched it was because the church that I went to 
um, not for youth group, but the church that I grew up in, a Lutheran church, they started doing for their Maundy Thursday service. If you know, you're not familiar with the church tradition, Maundy Thursday is sort of the Thursday before Good Friday and Easter during Holy Week. And they started doing what they called the Living Lord's Supper. Um, men from the congregation would um, pose as Da Vinci's Last Supper, and then each one would come up and give a sort of like reenactment of them as the disciple. My dad... Uh, was first cast and has always been Judas in that uh, in that performance at the church, but this was the first year they were doing it, and my dad was sort of like, I think he, I think he was pretty excited about getting back into theater. <laughs> so, was your dad into theater before? In, in high school? Oh, cool. he did. Uh, he was like in all the productions and everything, and I guess huh. he was really good in Belleville, Illinois. Um, Very nice. But he, you know, I think he was excited about being, and I think he was excited about Judas because Judas was kind of oh, like, what a great role! It was a great role. You wow, know, you can sink your teeth. <laughs> into <laughs> so much conflict, you know? <laughs> so I, I think my dad wanted to find a way into the character of Judas. Like, mm-hmm. I think he wanted to find, like, how do you empathize with the character of Judas? You know, the, someone who betrays Christ. Right. And he ended up just renting it to watch it for this reason. And I watched it with him and my mom. And I think that for me, that was what gave me permission. It, it was like permission to say like, you can still be a person of faith and explore. Mm. You can still be a person of faith and watch things that explore ideas that are unorthodox, but that they can actually be a process through which to grow. Yeah, And it was a movie. I, I will honestly say that movie haunted me. It is one of the most gritty portrayals of not just, you know, things like the violence of the crucifixion, but also the portrayal of just that ancient world. It was Scorsese. Mm-hmm. He was not going to shy away from conflict, from violence, from blood. And this was a portrayal of Christ that showed real struggle. And if I had to sum up what this movie did for me as far as defining, it showed me that a movie can be a way that a filmmaker can actually work out. They can work through shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a filmmaker can work out their ideas through their filmmaking and invite you into that process. And I find that fascinating. This was definitely a passion project of Martin Scorsese's. Mm-hmm. This was not a movie anybody wanted him to make. This was not a movie that was easy to make. This right. was a movie that was constantly getting shut down. At one point, I learned this from watching the commentary. At one point, the head of Paramount said to him, why in the hell are you making this? Why do you want to make this movie? Mm. And Scorsese says, if you watch the commentary, he says he, it almost like it just came out of him just very quickly and very sincerely, he said, "Um, I want to know Jesus more. This was a movie that was boycotted (laughs) by so many. People said that the film itself was possessed. Right. Um, but this was Scorsese's attempt at trying to understand Jesus more. Um, and from the get-go, it is telling you this is not based on the Gospels. Right. Um, this is a thought experiment, really. This yeah. is a thought experiment of trying to figure out how we understand the duality of Christ uh, as both fully human and fully God. And beyond that, because the movie does technically delve into, you know, if you want to get into it, sort of heresy of mm-hmm. adoptionism and things like that. But at the same time, by using Christ as the way to wrestle with that idea of that duality of the flesh and the spirit, it's inviting you, I think, as a human being, and if you are someone who follows that that faith, to think about that in your own life and what that wrestling right. looks like. It's a movie that I find super fascinating. I do think it is well made. It's a little sloppy in parts. Yeah. Harvey Keitel's performance is <laughs> odd. 
But going back to the idea of music, the yeah. music by Peter Gabriel, of all people, uh, that he does for this is some of the best scoring I, I have ever heard in a film, I think. And it's very 80s. I'll yeah, give it that. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's Scorsese. I mean, I just, this, this, is, this is a guy who has meant so much to me as far as film yeah. goes. And to me, what I love about him is where he will just occasionally do these movies that are just complete personal films to him. And as this one, Silence is another one he yeah. did. And they never get the attention they deserve. Mm-hmm. They never get the even even uh, critical evaluation I think they merit. Yeah. Everybody's um, just sort of like, that was weird. <laughs> but they're so rich. Yeah. And they they really reward repeat viewings, I think. Yeah. Um, and they're dangerous. Like they have yeah. they have this like well, they're dangerous because they're honest. That's like, the, that's just it. And I just love that sort of courageous style of filmmaking. And that yeah. was another thing to me. I was like, this is a movie that has to come from a single point of view. Right. You don't get this made by um, anyone other than someone who just is, this is the movie I want to make and this is what I want to say about things. Yeah. You know? I actually, I didn't see this movie until college. Um, I So in a way, I was more ready for it. Um, but I did see... In high school, I think it was like it was on like I am the or the IFC channel or something. I turned to it just in time to see Jesus come off the cross and be tempted to the last temptation. Right. Yeah. And I was so disgusted that I turned it off because I was a good youth group kid. Right. And all I saw was Jesus come off the cross and take a wife. And then I saw it in its entirety. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so profound. Like it adds another layer of power to it. Right. That like we don't know this. And maybe it's heresy to say it happened, but why wouldn't Satan do his best to tempt tempt him in right. that moment? Right. <laughs> right. Like it makes so much sense. And I had never ever seen anybody emphasize Jesus' humanity and yes. what that means to us. Right. It's just a movie that is doing so much important work with Christianity. Yeah. Just asking things or thinking about things that aren't false, but are important, you know, right. like uh, maybe they're not true even, but they're important. And, and that's, that's the thing is this doesn't need to be true necessarily. Right. It's not making for a it claim. Be, right. It's not saying, Oh, here's the real story. It's no, just, not at all. If this is true about him, then what does that mean for us? Or just the nature, just just to even take it in the more abstract, even like just what does this mean about the idea of temptation? We sometimes think of temptation as here's a moral code. You're you're usually tempted to disobey it. Yeah, you're, the moral code is you got to stand the moral code. But this is basically like, what if your largest temptation isn't actually a bad thing? Right. Getting technically wa- a sin. It's like, like wanting to have a family right. and get married is not a sin, but it was a temptation for this character. Right. Because this character knew what. He knew what right. God wanted from yeah. him. The scene that always confused me for years was the Harry Dean Stanton scene with Paul as mm. Paul. This is during the the um, fantasy sequence. Yeah. And Jesus is an old man. He's got a family. Paul is basically like a revivalist preacher. He's right. definitely pulling from this tradition of you know a revivalist preaching. And he's preaching what Paul preaches, if yeah. you read Paul. Um, and Jesus, uh, as played by Willem Dafoe, comes up to him and says, you know, you're telling people lies. I, I didn't. I I didn't rise from the dead. I didn't die on the cross. I came down. I have a family. Um, and Paul basically says, um, you know, your Jesus doesn't mean anything to anyone. 
Yeah. My Jesus gives hope to people. And I kept saying, I kept interpreting that as, oh, that's awful. The idea of like, you know, if you go with this movie that basically Christianity as we know it's it is just lie, Paul's yeah. lie. But that's not what's being said. Right. What's being said is if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Jesus is not a very powerful idea. Right. And Paul knows this. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately where Jesus ends back up. Turns, and, it, yeah. and that's that's the last right. temptation. Right. That's what pulls him out of it, essentially. One of the things. <clears throat> you know, the other thing is Judas coming back and saying, you yeah. didn't do your part. I did my part. You didn't do your part. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, which is another fascinating idea. Could be heresy, but right. that's a fascinating idea of like, we do have to reckon with this idea of like, if that's what Judas was always supposed to do, how, yeah, how right. awful is that? Like right. he was destined to be cursed, yeah, you know? Yeah. So in that way, it's a, it's a haunting yeah. kind of scary movie because it doesn't try to obfuscate those very challenging ideas of the faith and to do that in a movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great that you got Martin Scorsese in your list. Uh, he's definitely one of those like influential of course, filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, we could, we could do an yeah. entire episode and maybe someday maybe we, we will. will. Uh, but it's just uh, it's a fantastic film for yeah. a lot of reasons. Yeah. You know, that's a great pick too. These are all great picks. Everybody's got great picks. <laughs> no let's one's hear, arguing let's here, hear so. some, let's hear some more great picks. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, why don't I why don't I go ahead and just read an, an email that came in from a listener, Paula, um, who you, actually, if you ever listened to our mini episode about the Avengers oh, yeah. uh, that we did uh, in the Marvel universe, was that was all based off of, by inspired question. by a question that Paula sent in. Anyways, what I love about what Paula did was she actually got her husband uh, James involved in this, so we got two lists out of this, a two yeah. for one, a two for one deal out of this. Oh, so um, let me just go ahead and read uh, this email real quick. Uh, My husband James and I have been thinking about our definitive movies for the past few days. We tried to consider films that we felt impacted us in some way, shaped our perspective on film, or influenced our personalities slash senses of humor. These are definitely not all of our favorite movies, but certainly may have helped forge a path to what we would consider our favorites. This was a really interesting way to consider films and led to some interesting discussions. Um... So let me go ahead and just read these. This is what we landed on in no particular order. This is Paula's list. We've got um, Atonement, Mm. The Dark Knight, Psycho, The Goonies, and The Room. Wow. (laughs) That is quite the list. That is so much variety. It's a lot of variety. Yeah. I can see why all of these would have mm-hmm. sort of defining characteristics. Yeah. You know? The Room I still have never seen. Have I haven't seen either. No, I haven't. I, I saw, was it called The Disaster Artist? Yeah. I saw that movie about the making of The Room. I mean, I know I know people love it. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that one is an interesting choice because it's probably more about the experience of watching yeah, it. Yeah, I wonder. Than, yeah, yeah. That would be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. But, yeah. But uh, yeah, really fascinating list. And then uh, her, uh, uh, her husband's list... Uh, here we go. Wayne's World. Hey. There we go. Three so that's different three, lists. Yeah. So we're talking, I mean, that's that's that's, that's verifiable. So that's, yeah. that's definitive if, yeah. if there ever was something. That's the definition of definitive. <laughs> uh Happy Gilmore, mm-hmm. The Blues Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, and Hey Hey, Toy Story. Toy Story, yeah. Wow. That's a lot of comedy and then a lot of tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> and Toy Story. Yeah, those were all, I think, a lot of movies that people have rewatched at least the people i know um th- those are just ones that came at the right time and became part of people's rotations yeah definitely kind of like a phenomenon type movies mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah 
Uh, and I will say, so for me, it wouldn't probably be so much Happy Gilmore, but Billy Madison was one that. Oh, that's I, your kind of Adam. That's Sandler. my Adam Sandler. Is that, uh, I watched that movie so many times. It's probably yeah, that in Wayne's World. To me be honest, too. Yeah, those are both great lists, and uh, we're really grateful to Paula and James for sending those along. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are probably hearing that list also and being like, Oh yeah, oh yeah, that one too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Paula and James. Appreciate that. Um, so my, my fourth movie is one that I actually, my last two movies are movies I teach. So I have okay. seen this movie probably like 20 times. Um, and that is eternal sunshine of the spotless mm. mind, uh, written by Charlie Kaufman, directed by Michel Gondry, starring mm. Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet. This movie, it's definitive for me in so many different ways. Um, movie going wise, uh, I, I'd seen Charlie Kaufman before. Um, honestly, adaptation could have made it to this list too. Mm. Our first episode was being John Malkovich. That's right. But Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, just from a movie going experience, Michel, Michel Gondry's direction of a script that could have gone a completely different direction. Um, and maybe Charlie Kaufman still wishes it had gone a different direction to make this movie that is really sweet Mm -hmm. in a very, I guess, realistic way, you know, a, a very earned sweet. You go through a lot of stuff to finally come out at the other end and say and feel those like positive feelings, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. just watching his filmmaking is uh, influential and definitive to see what he could do with in-camera effects and computer effects and with a story, with shaping a story and the visual cues of here's how I'm going to orient you in this totally disorienting world. Yeah was a marvel so you know just one of those movies that holy shit that's a good movie yeah yep um this is one that very easily could have been it was on my list for a while it was one of the last ones that was hard for me to scratch off yeah and uh on top of charlie kaufman's script which he just can take ideas that have have no place outside of a late night dorm room conversation and figure out how to unpack them in a story that makes sense mm-hmm. and actually then kind of concludes on those ideas. Um, not to mention just being, you know, 20 and seeing a movie that was just a total like, Oh my gosh. Like yeah. just like a crazy concept of a movie. Uh, but that has so much more to it than, I mean, not to, you know, if inceptions on anybody's list, that's totally fine. But like inceptions kind of got and and some of those movies that have like a, a crazy concept and that's about where it's stopping you know maybe it's saying some things about memory and humanity or whatever but like not like eternal sunshine is saying things about memory and humanity and like i said this is a movie that i teach and i i think about it a lot um and i you know talk to my students about it and it's it's a movie i teach with my unit on ethics which is not i think typically where people think about this movie but I think my personal history with it is why I think about it with ethics. A lot of people would think about it as identity and memory and like, you know, how much of our identity is our memory. And if we erase part of our memory, are we the same person? That sort of thing. But I really think about the ethics of forgetting with this movie. Mm, yeah. And what does it mean to forget your mistakes? And what does that, what kind of person does that make you? And I, I saw this movie at a time, it was fairly recently after 
the breakup of my longest relationship apart from my relationship with my wife. It was a relationship from the end of high school into college. And then to see this movie was really remarkable. And I'm, I'm terrible at breaking up. I, I do not heal relationships well. But as I've watched the movie, I realize how much uh, in common I had with Joel and have with Joel. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I've noticed about him the more I watch the movie is how forgetting allowed him to think that he wasn't a harmful person and that he was quiet and quote unquote nice, but he was also really hurtful. Mm -hmm. And some of the first memories he erases from Clementine are times where he says things to shut down a conversation. He says them quietly. They're not necessarily untrue, but they're extremely hurtful. Don't tell me things, Joel. I'm an open book. I tell you everything. Every damn embarrassing thing. You don't trust me. Constantly talking isn't necessarily communicating. I don't do that. I want to know you. constantly talk jesus he just says these incredibly cutting things yeah and i realized that joel forgetting those things makes him think going forward that he's always going to be the one who's right Mm -hmm. in the relationship and if they dissolve it's because of other people's problems and that's absolutely something that I do. I'm somebody who thinks I'm right. I really value being right. And I will ignore the hurt I can cause to people because I'm not wrong. You know? right. I mean, honestly, even at the time in college, I looked like him. Like <laughs> I could see it. <laughs> I dressed like him. I looked like him. I acted like him. I mumbled like him. I slouched around, like shuffled around like him. Um, and so like... For better or for worse, to watch Eternal Sunshine is to understand me kind of at my worst, like, <laughs> a little bit. Like, I think it's just a really profound thing to think, like, how often do we willfully forget things that mm-hmm. are convenient? And how often are we perpetuating our issues by doing that? The fact that you're going to do it again, like the, the cycle is going to repeat. And Charlie Kaufman wanted the movie to be a lot darker. I think he want, maybe you know wanted that to be the emphasis. Whereas Michel Gondry said, "Like, okay, but let's make it aspirational. Like, yeah, no, you're going to keep repeating the love too. You know, like, yeah, I really think that's a that's a great lens to watch that movie through, and one that I probably need to go back and rewatch and kind of look at it more through that. Like when I saw this movie, I was in my relationship with Andrea, who you know is my wife." But we oh, were, right, yeah. Yeah, you know, we gave with her a shout out at the beginning with, with, the, with mug, the mugs, yeah, with the mugs. Oh. But for me, it was kind of one of those, I was in that sort of like, this is my first long-term relationship. And we were kind of getting to that point mm. where it was sort of like, are we committed to do each we other? Keep going, or do we, do we keep going? Are we kind of, cause we're starting to fight a little bit and we're starting to kind of get a little on each other's nerves and the butterflies are still there, but they're not as, you know, often as they were before. And my favorite romantic movie is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. <laughs> And it has everything to do with the way Michel Gondry decided to end it. I mean, I, I really... Because I think it works on that one, level, one, too, one, Once sure. I found out that that's not how Kaufman wanted to end it, I was kind of like, oh, 
that's a little too bad because I kind of thought that was all his point. Yeah. But either way, I think Michel Gondry kind of, for me at least, made it at least a really good love story. Yeah. Because it tells you if you're in that spot that I was in, this is a person who could have had all those bad fights erased. You're right. Um, and ends up deciding the relationship is better for it. And that that is going to continue. Right. It is not like we fought a lot and now that I remember it, we don't have to fight so much anymore. He yeah. basically tells her at the end, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah. But I still want to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's why it was really hard not to make this a defining movie because in a way it was kind of like, that was, a decision. To that, that was <laughs> yeah. a decision I made. I, that was when I really, well, that, that movie taught me that love can be a decision. See, this is you know? why, this is why Michel Gondry's ending doesn't corrupt everything about it because Charlie Kaufman would have headed in the direction of, you know, the cynical, like, if you keep forgetting, you're going to keep making the same mistake sort of thing. And Michel Gondry really subtly said, okay, true, but it isn't you will keep forgetting and you will keep making the same mistakes. You can either keep forgetting or you can say to every mistake you've ever made, every bad situation you've been in and say, okay, and that's it. Like, I did it. Okay. Yeah. Now what? Every relationship exists because people keep saying, okay. And I, I ask my students, like, would you get into a relationship if you knew it was going to end? Like, if you were in their situation, would you keep doing it? And a lot of kids are like, well, no, why would you? And I was like, well, we all get in relationships knowing they're going to end. Whether you stop being friends or stop dating yeah. or get divorced or die, this is the reality. So we can either forget or we can keep saying, okay. Yeah. So that's why I think it works so beautifully that Michel Gondry saw the upside to what Charlie Kaufman could. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a betrayal of the movie. It's, it's just a better perspective on the real problem. And yeah, it's not a bad reminder every, for me, two times a year to keep, not, you know, like, not just like, not that I'm like thinking of ending my marriage at any point or ever, <laughs> but just like with right. everything about like, Time keeps moving forward. Yeah. You can't go back. You can't erase it. You can just say every day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good choice. Thank you. All right. So for my fourth one, I'm going to do one that I know you also have a lot of fondness for as well. I'm going to do, uh, this is Wes Anderson's The Royal mm -hmm. Tenenbaums. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a movie that, uh, well, Wes Anderson period is one that I know we've talked about a lot as being right. someone that we both love. Our Darjeeling Limited episode was one where we kind of, Gushed quite a bit about Wes Anderson and also about how that movie was really underappreciated. Yeah, by us. Um, by, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but for me, Royal Tenenbaums was my entry point yeah. into uh, Wes Anderson. I saw it in the theater. I had not seen Bottle Rocket. I had not seen Rushmore. I definitely, right after Royal Tenenbaums, yeah. went and got caught up right away, you mm -hmm. know, with all that stuff and, and have since rewatched and rewatched all those movies quite a bit. Yeah. But I still, I don't know. I don't know if Wes Anderson has really ever hit Royal Tenenbaums level again. Mm. Um, there's just something for me very, very special and, and, and almost perfect about that particular Wes Anderson movie. It seems like it's where he really came into his own as far as what we think of with Wes Anderson, yeah. as far as the meticulousness and the, the, the sort of um, crafted set pieces and really tight-knit nature of it all. Um, and I feel like he's only kind of ratcheted that up as he's gone on. But Royal Tenenbaums has that perfect hybrid of that, but also with the looseness of like Rushmore and Bottle Rocket. Um, yeah. 
going back to the idea of comedy, it was the one that showed me that I could find something funny that my parents just did not. <laughs> <laughs> or or that a lot of people just did not. Yeah. There are people who love Wes Anderson and there are definitely people who are like, I don't get that guy. Yeah. Like I just don't get what's great about him. It was a humor that was new to me, a yeah. comedy, and new to the point where when I first saw it, uh, I didn't know how to react. Like right. I was laugh, I, I thought it was funny, but I was like, "Do I laugh out loud?" Or right. like, I don't know. Or do I knowingly nod, and it's also I'm like, and it's funny, but it's also kind of a sad movie, right. and and it's it is a sad movie, but that was new to me. Like like you're talking about the movies I was Billy Madison, right? Uh, Wayne's, Wayne's World. World. They never get to that level of just absolute sadness and ache that you right. have in Royal Tenenbaums. Right. I would say that what probably was, looking back, what I think was my entry point to the movie, just looking at what I was watching at the time, was probably like, oh, it's a Ben Stiller movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then realizing Ben Stiller's not funny in this at all. Yeah. And I just loved that mixture and didn't know what to do with it at first. And that's how it was defining because I had to settle into that and I had to figure that out. And I, I also, and, and this is a, a feeling I had when I just watched The French Dispatch, a movie I liked quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of like, I just miss a good Wes Anderson soundtrack. Yeah. Yep. He gets good people to do scores, but it's been a long time since he's done a movie with a great soundtrack. I, I mean, I would say it's probably since Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Trust me. We listen to it a lot. I got I got I got to listen to it again. But it's this is still when he's really utilizing that very particular sort of slightly underground rock and roll music. Right. Um and using it to really really great effect. Um and Elliot Smith. And Elliot Smith. Holy cow. Yeah. Um there's just so many memorable scenes in there mm-hmm. and and they're usually tied to music i mean when yeah. margo gets off the bus oh, yeah. to to these, these days, days is i mean is there is there a better wes anderson moment than oh that? with I the mean, slow motion no. and the yeah 70s 60s 70s yeah. rock it it all comes together there yeah I noticed this with the French Dispatch. It's like he's gotten to the point where he's kind of cramming in his Wes Anderson-ness. Like it's almost like he can't fit it in fast enough. And so it's mm-hmm. it's hard to even catch up with. Yeah. Um, and Royal Tenenbaums is just a little more relaxed. Yeah. And it's just got these moments of just absolute, they just tear me apart every time, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, when Ben Stiller's Chaz says, "I've had a rough year, Dad," yeah. is just oh, it, yep. I I break down every time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and of course, I mean Gene Hackman as right. Royal, it right. just doesn't get. I mean, that's just such an interesting character that yeah. you just don't see much in the movies. Um, a real son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know how much more i could add to that i mean i uh over the years it's become one that i i appreciate more and more and it's interesting to think about it in comparison to his newer movies because he is kind of becoming a caricature of himself but he's also still doing like really good work yeah i don't want to speak ill no. of wes anderson but i do There's just, just miss... something about yeah like pre grand budapest hotel wes anderson but i i do think we should listen to our listener and friend justin's yes. list he didn't he gave us three movies right they right didn't so he's still five yeah, yeah we'll, we'll we'll let it slide for that's now fine. yeah that's fine 
not to spoil his uh, voicemail, <laughs> right. but he's got Royal Tenenbaums on that list. So uh, let's hear what Justin has yeah. to say. Hey, Nate and Ryan, this is Justin. Congrats on 100 episodes. That's a pretty significant milestone. You guys have done a great job. I've been listening since the beginning and have really enjoyed following along on your journey and uh, had a really hard time coming up with five defining movies. So since it's your podcast and you have to do it, you can do it. I'm just going to do three. Um, I've got Royal Tannenbaums. Uh, I, I remember seeing that in high school at a midnight matinee at a local theater and just being blown away by it. And I've followed Wes Anderson ever since. I've said he's my favorite director for a long time. Um, so, so that's one. Uh, a second, I'm going to go with Star Wars. Um, not the most artistically amazing movie, but uh, really caught my imagination as a kid and uh, been captivated ever since and now introducing my kids to it. And that's been a lot of fun. And then the third one, I'm going to, I'm going to go with airplane, which I, I, I can't quite explain it, but there's nothing like that type of comedy. So just get me rolling. It just, it just breaks me down and uh, I love it. I, I think that that style of humor is super funny. So I guess some honorable mentions would be Muppet Christmas Carol. We watch it every year as a family. And, um, I'm going to just also say as an honorable mention, a time for burning, uh, a really, moving documentary about Omaha, Nebraska in the 60s, the city I'm from, as they struggle with racial reconciliation and some of the key players in that documentary are still uh, important figures in Nebraska politics. And also, uh, Ryan, I lent it to you a few years ago. I think you still have it. So um, mostly I just wanted to mention the movie so I could say that. But anyway, thanks again, guys. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to the next 100 episodes. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, thank you, Justin. That was a great list. And uh, Ryan, you got to get that DVD back. Come I know. On. I know. I haven't made it out to Omaha it's, in a while. It might. That movie might even be on a streaming platform at this it point. Might be, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I mean, this is a home stretch. We're in our, our last. Yeah. We're in our, our fifth movies. Um, mine is one. Uh, my fifth one. I I watched this pretty soon after college, um, and it was 1989. We did an episode about it. Yeah. Spike Lee, do the right thing. Oh man, um, I, I thought about not putting this on my list for a lot of reasons, for various reasons. Not the least of which being, I didn't understand its impact on me until five years ago, six years ago, which felt too late to be a defining sure. yeah. movie. <laughs> but it's true that I, I, I see the world differently because of do the right thing. It has, it has that power. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, we, we did a whole episode on it, so I don't need to go into everything about it. Dig through those archives. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, I do know when I saw it the first time I knew I was seeing something powerful and special. And I went back to a professor who for one of the classes on like race, showed crash <clears throat> and i said this is the movie you should be showing and i lent it to her and she said something along the lines of that movie's doing something very different i was like uh-huh. yeah being honest right <laughs> and so she that's what it's declined doing. <laughs> to to use it in her class and i didn't even know how to articulate to her why <laughs> This was like important. Uh, I just knew it was something different. So it has taken again another movie that I teach. So I've seen it like twenty or more times. Yeah, 
um, to really get what it's doing. But from a movie viewing standpoint, the movie shows how you tell a complex story and how you satisfactorily leave unanswered questions by posing really strong questions. Um, this is a movie that asks and asks and asks and also shows like, here's one side of that, but what about this? And so just for a movie to be able to so thoroughly display the complexity of an issue that we do not understand the complexity of, that is to be racism. (laughs) (laughs) This is the standard for watching movies about race. But also, just as someone who's been learning about race and racism, um, it's been the movie that everything I learn, everything I read, I can connect to do the right thing. Hmm. And it's like, oh, do the right thing was talking about that. That's something Spike Lee brought up. Oh, that's why this character does this. Oh, like it just, the more I learn about the topics and philosophies and realities that the movie is addressing, the more I see it was all there all the time. And it's not a bad movie to have more or less memorized, (laughs) like to be sort of like cycling some of the experiences of the people in the movie and everything uh, through my head as I just kind of live my life. You know, there's, so much that's happening in the movie that shouldn't really work. Like the fact that one of the only songs in the movie is fight the power and plays like the beginning 15, 14 times throughout the movie yeah, and doesn't lose its power in that repetition. Mm, yeah. And Bill Lee's score, which at times is like melodramatic is working so well with the frenetic hip hop style of right. the movie. Yeah instead of working against it. And just the things that he's able to combine to make it, again, just a brilliant movie. Although, like, not a movie that you would watch at first glance and say, that is a good movie. Like, that is a well-done movie. Yeah. Um, It feels like it's a movie that has frayed edges until you realize, like, oh, there's no way to tell the story with clean edges. Right. I don't know of another movie that is as relevant today as the day it was made that's a good point yeah sadly so i don't know what more to say about it we did an episode about it and it's just i i would say i i know we said earlier that these aren't necessarily our favorite movies i would say right now that that do the right thing is my favorite movie all right so one in the same defining and uh favorites yeah so it's just it's an incredible film i mean the first time you watch it the way you're just kind of thrown into it and, and, it, and it sort of jostles you around a bit yeah. You could be fooled into thinking maybe it's not a super tight, well-made film mm-hmm. until you kind of watch it again. And you're like, no, this is perfectly crafted. Yeah, it's perfectly crafted to do exactly what it did, and it did it to you right. without you even knowing it. You right, know? <laughs> right. And yeah, it, I think it's the movie that helps you understand a lot of Spike Lee movies. Yes, yeah. That like whatever you see happening in his other movies, it's like, well, it kind of comes back to what he was doing and do the right thing. Right. I mean, if you, I mean, we did Defy Bloods right. too, and I think for us, like, we appreciated that movie a lot more. Kind of really thinking about it and, and doing it after we'd already done our Do the Right Thing episode, yeah. and, and coming to it with sort of that idea of Spike Lee and what he's been doing all along. Right. You know exactly. 
So, all right, here we are, the last yeah. one. This is the Your last fifth. one, my fifth. Uh, this is no particular order, so not necessarily like the right, cream of the crop. You know, not, just, I, not the icing on the cake or number one, but my number, f- uh, my fifth movie is Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, mm-hmm. uh, a movie that I just love watching over mm-hmm. and over again. I, I just and and I keep thinking this is a movie that isn't going to age well, right? And then I watch it again. Yeah, age is just fine. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. And rewatching it, I was I was like, this is so fun. It's such a fun movie. It's, this is a movie that it had to be on my list because I tell you, every time I put it on, maybe I'll put it on and say, I'm just going to watch a little bit of it. <laughs> I I can never stop this movie. We yeah, absolutely. We were we we had like a Zoom call the night we were watching it, and afterwards I was like, we'll start this and we can finish it tomorrow. And of course, we went all, all the way. The way. <laughs> it's just and that's watching it again for this episode. I was just really amazed by how much this movie just, it glides. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that just glides by. Um, and I love how well it just establishes every character. If you've seen it a couple times, you keep thinking, you keep waiting for that spot where you're going to stop it. But then it gets into a part and you're just, I can't stop it oh, here. Yeah, like, part. you know, especially the way Crow executes specifically Lester Bangs. Yes. Those would be the moments I think you would turn it off but they bring Philip Seymour Hoffman in as Lester Bangs, and you're just like, I can't take my eyes off this. I mean, this is such a great character, such a great delivery. Fucking nothing about you that is controversial, man. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. You're going to meet girls. They're going to try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great. But these people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars. And they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, and you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real. Right? And then right. it just becomes an industry of cool. I, I mean, I'm telling you, you're coming along at a very dangerous time for rock and roll. I mean, the war is over. They won. Cameron Crowe brings his experience as a rock journalist to this movie so that it just has this authenticity and the characters are so well thought out. This was actually, because I was really late to Fargo, this was my introduction to Frances McDormand. Mm. And I love her as the mother character yes. in this. She is so good. In my memory, um, that she that she was a much smaller part. Yeah, but she no, she's kind of sprinkled in throughout yeah. the whole movie. And I just that's a really interesting character. Someone who is super liberal, is super progressive, but really has a problem letting go with yeah. her kids. And especially with rock music, right. you know? Uh, and, and, and in a time where that would be something where even someone who was who thought of themselves as liberal and progressive, there was a time where rock and roll would be something where even they would be like, I just I don't know about this. Honey, right. they're on pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, just an incredible cast. Oh, my gosh. I mean, of course, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman, which I had this realization when I was watching it. I think I've been avoiding Philip Seymour Hoffman movies ever oh, since he died. You, yeah, because you thought it would... It's hard. Yeah. It really is. Just because every time you watch him, you're like, nobody... Like, potentially, you could make the argument, nobody has been better than him. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to come up with... I mean, he's <laughs> just always so good, you know? Anyways, yeah. I mean, it's... And it's just... It's a funny movie. Yes. It is so funny. 
Um, and it's only funny because of the way those characters deliver those lines. Yeah. And, and this, it's a, it's a movie that's about criticism, music criticism, yeah. which, you know, there's tons of movies about musicians and rock bands. And there's just not a lot of movies about the idea of like criticism in a way that's favorable in a way that's like criticism is about loving music. Yeah. And this is a movie that is about loving music. And what does it mean to love music? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't just tell you music's important. It shows you through film and through the music. Like when he puts on, you know, Tommy, Tommy. Mm-hmm. and the way that it films the record spinning with like the guitar sort of noises yeah. and everything. And then it just kind of jump cuts to him in high school. He's not a cool high schooler. No. But the way it jump cuts to him and the camera sort of glides through the classroom, you're just kind of like, oh, he's grown up. Yeah. He's grown up and he's got rock and roll now. He's yeah. Getting, you know? Well, and it shows the significance of music and it also shows the ridiculous of the significance of music yeah. like when she has to play Simon and Garfunkel it's like I think we've all felt that that like <laughs> this song says what I feel and it's still it's it's not false but it's also pretty silly yeah Lester Bangs uh I just love the line where he just says the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool <laughs> and I'm like mm-hmm. hey that's me and Ryan <laughs> sharing stuff about movies when we're super uncool. That's that's definitely <laughs> true. Yeah, that might be our new tagline. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's so much to say about the movie. We could probably yeah. do a whole other episode there's, on that movie uh, yeah, as well. We could well. probably do episodes on all the ones we haven't done episodes on. We could probably do episodes again on some of yeah. the movies. Yeah, that's a great pick, and exactly. I think a lot of people probably would. Uh, agree with you it might be one that they're like oh yeah yeah for me it was a, and we should get into this real quick as some, some runner-ups right. but yep. for me it was a toss-up between this one and high fidelity Ooh. like which music movie I do i, I want to go yeah. for but i had to go with almost famous just because i just have a little bit more fun watching it every time yeah so what, but what about yeah, you how about, how about, I, which, real quick because it's getting late here let's yeah, uh, it let's, is. let's run through some, what are some runner-ups for you well like i said earlier honorable uh, mentions hook you know. could have been could have been there um Apollo 13 was a movie I watched Mm. a lot as a kid. I I mean, Pulp Fiction could be on here. Um, One that I think is really pretty shocking is that Magnolia is not on here. That that would have been my my Um, guess of... like I was most surprised that one was not on for you. And and, I mean, upon reflection, it's possible that I'll feel like I should have put it on here. Um, That movie has meant a ton to me in my life. uh, you know, Fargo, you mentioned Fargo could be one on this list or, uh, you know, the fact that there aren't any Coen brothers, there aren't any P.T. Anderson, there isn't any Martin Scorsese. Um, wild, wild. No P.T. Anderson or Coens from either of but us. But I was saying to someone today that it's, I kind of feel like these are the movies that set me up to be able to watch P.T. Anderson <laughs> and the Coen true. brothers. That's a good point. And without these movies, I don't think I would be able to, you know, appreciate appreciate them as them much. As yeah. much. Um, and so, what about you? What are what are some other ones that almost made it or could have made it? Runner ups. I mean, for the longest time, I was like, I gotta have at least one Coen brothers movie on here. Um, but yeah, you're right. It just never quite. Yeah, quit. the Big Lebowski. It, 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 and for me, I've, for you know, you. Big Lebowski is one that I would often cite as a favorite movie, if yeah. not my favorite movie. I might have even gone with if I had to pick a Coen Brothers movie, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm. Just because I actually think I'd go back to that one now a little bit more. Uh, As far as just like entertaining movies that were very close to defining for me, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, I I mean, Spielberg, it's hard not to have him on the list either, I feel like. Um, Well, and I think both of us. Because you said Hook at least, but if I had to be honest, I think I just watched Raiders more than Hook. Hmm. Um, I think after 
our episode with Kelsey, the fact that Tree of Life isn't on that was this I, list for I have that written down here as Tree of Life, or at least some Terrence Malick. If it wasn't Tree of Life, it probably would be Days of Heaven. Mm. Um, and then uh, also, like like I said, I didn't even have a single like foreign language film on here, right. but I think the one that kind of opened me up to foreign language films the most was probably when I first watched The Seventh Seal, oh. Umar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Uh, but yeah, those would be probably... Uh, my runners up. Uh, one that I kind of kept coming back to was um, about Schmidt. Interesting. I really love that movie. Um, I think I've only seen it once. It it hit me hard the first time I watched it, mm. and I've seen it since a couple times. And it's a great, great movie. Um, but yeah, that 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 could maybe be a runner up as well. And I also also already mentioned Eternal Sunshine was hard to cross off. But yeah, well, it's been a a really good uh, exercise, like you said at the beginning, and I hope. Uh, other people, you can still send us your list. It's just an interesting way to think about movies. All right. Well, yeah, another those, one in the books. Those are our five defining movies, along with some listener input as well. Um, yeah. So. And we also should thank, we've thanked our listeners. We should thank all the guests we've had uh, over the oh, years, yeah. Yeah. too, who've uh, come in and shared their thoughts and uh, been able to put up with us for. Well, in a way, I think that exercise we've done at least the last year where we had people come in and just they got to pick the movie. That was sort of what they were doing was Mm -hmm. talking about a movie that kind of at least if not defining was super important and significant to them. Right. Right. Um, And so I guess it was I think guess it was only fair for it to be our turn. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, definitely. Thank you to all of our guests we've had. And hopefully we'll have many more in the future. Yeah. uh, And many more great movie conversations. Yeah. So best buds. Oh, come on, man. Yeah, thank you. And thank you. Like, thank you, Nate. Like, it's been yeah, great. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Ryan. It's uh, been yeah, a it's lot of easy fun. For, it can be easy to take it for granted to an extent. Sure. But uh, um, it's it's been a really great partnership and friendship and exercise. Yeah, and I agree. Eight years. Keep doing it. Yeah. It has been great. And uh, we do this, I think, for each other and for yeah. uh, what we get out of it. And, uh, you know, hopefully, I'm, I mean, we'll... Keep doing it as long as uh, we keep getting something out of it. So, yeah. yeah, it's been great. So well, let's talk about episode 101. Let's do it. Well, this uh, this next episode for our March episode, we're going to do something, uh, continuing to break ground. You know, you'd think 101 episodes. Let's what take else it is there easy. to do? Let's but... take it easy. Let's rest on our laurels. Right, right. But we're, we're going we're gonna to do something we've never done before. What? What could possibly have not been done before? Well, there are some people, I'm sure, who are like, oh, I know, I know, I know. I've been waiting for them to do anime. I've been waiting for them. They've done done some animation. They haven't done any anime. And they absolutely haven't done a Miyazaki movie. Wow. It's almost unforgivable. Um, It, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is unforgivable. It is unforgivable until we do it. Then we say, like, stop bringing that up. We, we did it. We say, okay. Yeah, we say, okay. And so we are going to say, okay, and uh, watch the really iconic movie, the winner, I believe, of the inaugural Best Animated Feature Oscar. Was it? I, there, there you're speaking from your expertise. I, I don't know. I'm speaking that, from my foggy memory of expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh that's a lot of the expertise on this show is foggy memory expertise. But if you don't know by now what I'm what, what movie I'm talking about, we're we're talking about Spirited Away. Oh man, I'm excited for this. Yep. And we and the, and the reason we're doing this is we've got an anniversary on our hands here. That's right. 
20th anniversary. So this is actually kind of in that way going back to kind of a, a classic Can We Still Be Friends uh, mm-hmm. template. I have only seen Spirited Away once. I think I've seen it twice. And I am... But it's been I, a long time. I need to watch it again. I had recently... And this is... I mean, I, I can't believe I'm even saying this on the air. I had never seen My Neighbor Totoro. <gasps> and I watched it for the first time uh, over my winter break. Oh, good. Absolutely loved it's it. Incredible, right? Absolutely loved it, and it made me just—I need to go back and rewatch all the Miyazaki and, and yes. catch up on stuff yeah. that I haven't seen still. But *Spirited Away* was definitely like, okay, gotta rewatch this one. Uh, let me just quick fact check myself. I was wrong. *Spirited Away* did not win the inaugural Best Animated Feature. Oh my gosh. That went to *Shrek* the year before. Then in 2002 was the year that *Spirited Away* won, beating *Ice Age*, *Lilo and Stitch*, *Spirit*, *Stallion of the Cimarron*. And uh, Treasure Planet. Anyway, so as you can imagine, trying to do this episode, uh, it's getting a little late. Yeah, uh, we, we've, we've been talked talk, for talking time. for a long time. Um, so let's just make sure that you all know you can reach out to us anytime. Right. We really hope you do watch this movie with us and let us know what you think of it. Let yeah. us know what you think about this episode. Mm-hmm. Share those lists still. Dig through those archives. Mm-hmm. We've got one. Hundred episodes. That's right. Worth of archives. Not counting mini episodes. Not. That's not even counting those. No. Those are bonus. Yeah. We give those away for free. Yeah. Well, we give the whole thing away for free, but this extra is free. For free. Yeah. But if you want to reach out to us, you can leave a comment on our website. Can we be friends dot net? Um, you can also find us on Facebook dot com. Can we be friends podcast? Mm-hmm. Her sister site, Instagram. Uh, can we be friends pod? Yep. Uh, you can email us. The email address is feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Uh, you can email us a, a, a voice memo package so. there. Yeah. And you can also call us at our phone number. 847-306-9532. Leave a message. 100 episodes in, operator is standing by. Still there. Honestly, we're like, you don't have to stand by. You can sit by. You can sit down. Yeah, but, but they stand. They stand. And they... they... And it's inspiring. And... Uh, troubling the last time i heard them talk they said why oh, stop now well and that's kind of isn't that kind of how we all feel and that's just this, yeah that's this just podcast? that's and and we said you're right you're 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 in the right spot yeah you, you could sit in that spot but but you don't but you know they don't want to they don't uh, so yeah operator yeah. is standing by standing and uh so give us those calls yep and so if you have been following us for, you know, these hundred episodes and you've stuck around this long through the episode, uh, one of the ways, the best ways that you can show your support uh, is just by leaving us a really kind rating on yeah. uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, does Spotify Any, have ratings yet? I think they were going to bring know. those in. I don't know. Anywhere that you can rate us, uh, even if it's not attached to us. If you're, if you visit a local botanic garden and... yeah. Google Maps prompts you to leave a rating. Yes, please do that. Leave us a rating. Yeah, I mean we'll we'll take a Yelp. Garden. We'll take a Yelp review. Yeah, I mean just go to your favorite spot and say five just, stars to this coffee house. But hey, also five, five stars, stars to this, this podcast. To be friends podcast. podcast. Yeah, this is great. Check it out. Like I recommend this uh, cafe latte and listen to this and podcast this while podcast. you drink it. Yeah, uh, five stars to both. Yeah. So yeah, those reviews are actually a possibly unfortunate way to help us out. Right. That the only way to uh, get us in the public eye is to rate us publicly. Yes, um, but that's the competitive world we live in. That's right. We didn't make the rules. We just we just play we by just, them. We just play by them, and then so. we break them. 
Because we're groundbreaking. Yeah. Groundbreaking, breaking all the rules. Groundbreaking rules. So you, you know what? Ground rule breaker. You, you know what? Don't rate us. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. But if you, it, it would actually it be really nice. Us, yeah. But we appreciate but, all of you. Yes. Definitely. Thank you for listening. And um, I guess we we'll will uh, see you for the next time. Catch 100. you next time. Ryan and Nate, congratulations on the 100th episode, and uh, man, just loving the podcast. I'm proud of you guys uh, for all that you've done over the years and the way that things have gone, have continued to go here, and just, yeah, I appreciate every episode. So I wanted to call in to share uh, one movie that um, that I have loved and have felt like I come back to it over and over over the years, is and that's uh, Forrest Gump. So... It's right in line there with the um, tea Thanksgiving celebration a couple months late here. But, yeah, that movie just depicts uh, so much beauty and love um, between people alongside a lot of tra- tragedy and heartache. And um, I remember when I was, like, 10 or 11 years old and that movie came out, seeing it kind of as a young, you know, as a boy, um, I remember thinking like a lot of parts of it were kind of heavy and things that I, you know, probably didn't quite understand the weight of, you know, what was happening. But I did understand that here is this person, this character, um, just so fantastically performed by Tom Hanks, who I feel like he showed so much of how what it means to be just to be yourself and to be able to love yourself and and in doing so, love other people. Um, man, I just that movie just kind of packages that in such a powerful way for me. So, yeah, what a great question. Um, I wish I could share four more, but that one stood out to me as number one, and other ones were hard to commit to. So, anyway, thanks for all you guys are doing. Keep it up. I look forward to hearing episode 100. Take care. It's the hundredth episode. Can we still be friends? Are you? Would you do that? Would you do the vocals on that? Well, did that sound good to you? That was good. Yeah. <clears throat>